Welcome to 30-Minute Theology, where we discuss the basics of Catholic belief and practice. With me today is Brother Mark. Mark, how are you doing? John, I'm doing wonderful today. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. I'm excited about today's topic. Um, It's very much part of mine and yours sort of study and um, career, I think. Uh, We're going to be discussing typology, um, which means that we are still in the Old Testament today. But what we're dealing with is the relationship theologically and literarily between the Old and New Testament. So last week we discussed covenant theology, covenant being just as a a reminder, covenant theology refers to God's covenant with mankind. And as I quoted from Scott Hahn, covenant is what God does because covenant is who God is. So we looked at God's interrelationship as Trinity, his relationship with creation as Trinity, and that God always um, consists in an act of self-giving love, and that through that self-giving love, he brings us into covenant with him. So we provided sort of a narrative survey of the Old Testament through covenant. So that's sort of the big picture. But today we're looking at smaller things like what do burning bushes and... Uh, shepherd boys and martyrs and prophets have to do with Jesus Christ because we can paint this narrative view, which makes a lot of sense. But then as you pick up the Bible, you notice there are 73 books. I was about to say 66, but that's the Protestant (laughs) answer. 73 books in the Bible, uh, which differ greatly in uh, literary type and uh, composition and genre. So we will be discussing typology. So, Mark, would you please say a word about what typology is? Sure. Uh, typology is when you see an event, a person, uh, a the- something theological happen in the Old Testament that kind of prefigures something you're going to see in the New. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, th- the thing about typology, some people get really squeamish about this when you say oh well we're looking for types we're looking for analogies you know why not just a straight up reading of the text Uh, when we do typological reading it's not that we or the church fathers who were great at this Mm -hmm. it's not that you just get to make up anything you know you can't see read something in the old testament say well i see uh you know penguins on the moon kind of thing it's, it's because we know the New Testament so well. It's, it's something we can actually see, again, a person, an event, or a theological concept that is clearly stated in the New Testament that you look back and go, oh, wait a minute, I can actually see that reflected in the Old Testament. You might not see it when a straight-up read, and we'll look at some examples in a little bit later in the program, um, you know, a straightforward literal reading, I wouldn't necessarily see that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that idea of, yeah, one thing points to another. That's right. I would like to say a word about a literal reading of Scripture because we use literal reading to mean something that is not what someone in the medieval or um, patristic era would have meant by literal reading. When someone says today that they subscribe to a literal revel- literal reading of the book of Revelation, I really can't figure out what they mean by that. <laughs> I know. I like, what on earth? <laughs> yeah. Um, or even likewise, this is maybe a little bit less ludicrous when someone says they take a literal view of Genesis. I don't know what they mean, but here's what these should mean. 
Literal meaning reading means technically reading according to literary type. Right. So if someone reads my letter literally, they would read it as a letter, not as a right. poem, not as an allegory. However, if I write an allegory, a right. literal reading of it is allegorical. Right. Right. So as Christians, we begin with the premise that Scripture is primarily about God. And we begin with a theological premise about what the gospel is, that it actually centers in Jesus Christ, his person, his redemptive work, his body, um, the sacramental life, the life of salvation he calls us into. And we see that everywhere, because that is the sort of literal premise that we're beginning with, is that the book is about Jesus Christ. I think that if we don't want to read the Bible typologically the way that the apostles do, we end up uh, either giving up because the Bible makes no sense, or we impose a different type of unity on it. So I see this in examples of people who basically turn the Bible into Aesop's fables, um, where it's just moralism, like Thomas Jefferson. Um, You see this with uh, crazy, loony preachers like Joel Olstein today who basically impose a narrative of the American <laughs> religion. And um, the things you can impose on Scripture are limitless. Yeah. But if we want to read the Bible the way the apostles do, we have to yeah. accept their framework. Yeah, uh, And I just want to return to a comment that you made. I think it's, it's important for our, our hearers to catch that distinction, uh, which I think you're exactly right. When people talk about a literal reading— uh, what these guys meant was the, the kind of reading you'd get or the understanding you'd get at, at a face value reading. Mm-hmm. But your, your point, it needs to be heard here, is that is absolutely dependent on the type of literature, or we call it genre. That's right. Uh, so if Paul is writing a letter, an epistle, he, in a literal reading, mm-hmm. is, it, it's, just, it's straightforward. He says what he means. There's no hidden meanings here. There's no allegory. It's, it's like reading a newspaper article. Because it's that type of literature. That's right. When you read the Psalms and it's poetry, like, like to say, well, what's a literal meaning? Does God have wings? Does he? Yeah. Uh, does he have actually a right hand? Well, no, he doesn't. What does that mean given the genre? So I think your point is well taken. I hope our, our listeners are, are getting it. We're not saying that you can't read the scriptures, at least the narrative portions or the didactic teaching passage, at, at, at a straightforward level or a, a face value level. But uh, maybe we should just throw that, even that description. How are you reading? Well, I read the Bible literally. Mm-hmm. Maybe even just throw that language out because it doesn't really make any sense. Correct. I think that part of what this conversation reminds us of is that to read the Bible well, we have to have a well-formed imagination. We have to have an imagination that is in accordance with Scripture, which means it has to be formed by the faith of the apostles themselves. Um, Because, like, we talk about psalms and poetry. Poetry is not less real than prose. Absolutely. It's it's just a very... Absolutely. It communicates really deep things. It's just a different type of communications. I would like to um, take us to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which we always give recommended resources at the end of this podcast. Unspoken uh, but implicitly recommended resources in every single episode, Scripture and the Catechism. <laughs> so, well, you would include Lord of the Rings, too. But then. Yes, Lord of the Rings. Uh, probably have season four of the Catechism podcast, which would be exclusively through the eyes of Tolkien. 
That's a different topic. But uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines typology this way. Old covenant prefigurations of what God accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate Son. So let's break that down. St. Augustine says in his book, De Doctrina Christiana, which is on teaching Christianity, that as humans communicate realities with words, so God communicates reality with persons and events. Because God writes not only in Scripture, but God in a certain way composes history. Which means that when we deal with typology, we're not just dealing with how the uh, authors of Scripture portray David. We're actually dealing with David as an actual person God created to be a type of his son. A type is a person or a moment or a scene which is analogous to Christ and his redemptive work. And analogous, that's the uh, adjective form of the word analogy. An analogy is something which is both like and unlike what it points to. So there are differences between Jesus and David and between Jesus and Moses and Jesus and Adam. Uh, But those dissimilarities also point to similarities, which help us make sense of Christ. Would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I I was was reading Thomas this morning, uh, Thomas Aquinas, and uh, this idea of analogous. And one of the things that is often overlooked, or part of the criticism from analogy or analogous use of things is, uh, to your point, the analogy only goes so far, uh-huh. and you have to understand the the author's point, in and then connecting the points that he wants you to connect. So there's always criticism from analogy to be able to say, well, this part doesn't match this part of your story. To, well, of course, it's not perfect likeness; it's an analogy. Exactly. And Thomas was pretty clear that okay, you know, I'll paraphrase him. Uh, give me a break. Okay? Exactly. It's I'm trying to make a point between you know the traveler on the road and the Christian, not every little detail is going to work. But yes. get my main point, yeah. and you'll see that uh, I can make a point using the analogy. So if St. Patrick used a three-leaf clover to communicate the Trinity, he didn't mean that in a literal way, and he's not actually a heretic? Yeah, God isn't green. He's yes. not floral. He, uh, but there, yes, there's aspects that he wants to communicate about threeness and oneness. Yes, and then you guys have done the thing on the Trinity, I think, already. That no analogy is perfect. If you get the oneness, you lose the threeness. If you illustrate the threeness, you lose the oneness. Yeah. Okay, we're limited. Analogies exactly. are limited. I have strong feelings about this because I teach children, and when people have demands for perfect analogies, like I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> I think we just have to be more subtle teachers than that. But um, I would like to move to why typology is necessary. Um, This is uh, another reminder of this podcast that sola scriptura does not work because there's never been a heretic who did not appeal to scripture. Uh, The most bold heretic in church history is Marcion, who wanted to throw out certain parts of the Bible. But even then, he had to appeal to something. So he did have portions of... Luke's gospel and Pauline epistles. So, sola scripture does not work. Why? Because before we get to our interpretation of scripture, there's actually a prior argument that's not spoken about what is scripture actually about. Well, one of the most important theologians of the early church and one of the best demonstrators, I believe, ever of typological reading of scripture is St. Irenaeus. Just a little bit about St. Irenaeus. Um, St. Irenaeus was taught by St. Polycarp. 
who was taught by the Apostle John. So when we look at St. Irenaeus and how he reads the Old and New Testament, we are, um, he is taught by the person who knew the Apostle John from childhood. Yeah. So I think we're on pretty solid ground there. Saint yeah, I, Ir- I like to refer to him. That's why I like the Church Fathers, because I, I, I like to say that these are the guys that knew the guys that knew the guy. So yeah. if John certainly would have corrected him, uh, they're, they're actually interacting with the guys who knew the guy being Jesus. That was like, I think I agree absolutely. That, that has to carry some weight yes. in our understanding of theology and Scripture. Absolutely. And we can look at the New Testament, look especially at the writings of the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul. They did not just trust anybody as teachers. <laughs> they were very demanding and discerning yep. in their expectations of who they entrusted as leaders of yep. the faith communities. So St. Irenaeus, he made the argument that Scripture is a mosaic of the face of a king. That king is Jesus Christ. And that the different passages of Scripture are like the different puzzle pieces. That Not puzzle pieces, but like the different pieces of glass that form a mosaic. Mm. Where you're looking at one... When you look at one piece in isolation from the rest of the picture, it doesn't tell you that much. But when you always look at the individual in light of the whole, it has context and makes sense, and it also enriches the rest of everything yeah. else you see. He compared people who have a deficient view of Jesus Christ and read the Bible to people who make a mosaic of like a dog's face and say, look, I've got it. And the pieces. They're using all the pieces, but for someone who's seen the picture, they know, no, that's not the case. So before, let's just back up a little bit. We said earlier at the beginning that typology is how the um, apostles read scripture. Well, that's something we can back up. Type comes from the Greek word typos. In Romans chapter 5, when Christ is comparing and contrast, when Paul is comparing and contrasting Christ with Adam, he calls Adam a typos of Christ. So, for our first example of typology, we will begin with the first man and why Adam is a type of Christ. So, let's look Romans chapter 5. Here's flipping our Bibles. Catholics do read the Bible. Yes. This is Romans 5 through 12. Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch all sinned. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. So let's just think of a couple reasons why Adam would be a type of Christ. What would we have in common? Well, first man mm-hmm. of, of their kind. That's right. Yeah. First man of their type. Yeah. So I guess Adam, we've since we're using type, maybe that's a bad word. Exactly. Uh, uh, Adam being the first truly human, mm-hmm. but then Jesus being the God-man, so he's unique in that sense. Mm-hmm. Through Adam, we inherit original sin. We've yeah. talked about original sin. Through Christ, we inherit grace. We inherit eternal life. 
regeneration unto a new life. There, there's also um, a typological connection in, in what makes them different. You think of how, why did we inherit sin from Adam? Well, we inherited sin from Adam um, largely due to his cowardice mm. and his um, refusal to trust mm. the word of God, stand by his woman, and stand up to the devil. Then we think about, and this all centers around a tree. Well, how do we receive life from Christ? That he obeyed his father, he resisted the devil to the point of death, and by doing so, he actually formed a bride, the church. Yep. So even in their dissimilarities, their yep. dissimilarities reveal a really profound connection. Yep. And uh, with that, as we go on in the in the passage, and, and we've talked about this before, and I know uh, as you and I have talked, this is kind of like one of our pet things with salvation. Um, it really the the essence of salvation is dependent on this too. I mm-hmm. think so many people we know, if you ask them to f- describe salvation, it's well, one day I get to go to another place. It, it's mm-hmm. about where you're going to spend eternity. It's about okay, I I believe. And I get to go to heaven as opposed to who are we becoming mm-hmm. and Christ being the second Adam that tells us a lot about the very nature of salvation. We're becoming like him. We were like Adam and because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are becoming like him. That's right. Yes, we, we get, we're, we're going to, well, we're actually not going to heaven one day, the new creation, heaven's coming down to earth, but mm-hmm. again, beside the point, uh, so the very nature of salvation, of why, as you point out, it's so important that Jesus be the second Adam, or that Adam is a type, because what Adam did, Jesus reverses. Mm-hmm. And if what Adam did was bring death, then salvation must be characterized, as you said, by we're gaining life, and not just some life in a future eternity, mm-hmm. we're becoming like him now. That's right, and... Um... <clears throat> What the apostles are doing here, they're not making up similarities between Christ and Adam. They're noticing something. Yep. And St. Paul makes these connections explicit sometimes because they're brought up contextually in his epistles. But sometimes they're mentioned very subtly. A lot of typology in the Old Testament is never made explicit in the New Testament because I can't imagine how large the New Testament would be if it was just a list of typological links. But an example of this same type being mentioned really subtly, um, you read the resurrection account at the end of John's gospel, which is amazing. Mm. It's not a coincidence that Mary Magdalene, when she does not first recognize Christ, she sees him in a garden and she mistakes him for the gardener, which I think bells should be going off in our (laughs) brain, like you're saying, Mark, new creation, new Adam. Yeah. It's all it's all beginning again, yeah. this time uh, on the right foot. So there are so many. I would like to very quickly talk about Moses. And once again, mm-hmm. this is a type which is not stated often in Scripture. It's very subtle. But you see all throughout Matthew's Gospel implicit connections between mm-hmm. Christ and Moses. Through uh, When Christ gives a Sermon on the Mount, he goes up a mountain. Yep. Like Moses receives the Ten Commandments up there. Um, Christ in his infancy has to be protected yeah. from a tyrant the same way that Moses had to be protected from Pharaoh. 
well, where do Joseph and the Virgin Mary take him? But to Egypt. Egypt. So Jesus has this sort of hidden passage in his childhood, similar to Moses being raised in a sort of mysterious, quiet manner in Egypt, as well as his miraculous uh, deliverance through the Red Sea. Are there any other types that you would like to point out oh, with Moses? Oh, gosh, yeah. Just, just for an example? <clears throat> sure. Well, I think you see that in the entire introduction to in, in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, the ones you've already mentioned, when Jesus comes down the mountain, he then does a series of ten miracles, mm-hmm. which would be analogous to the ten plagues on Egypt. It's yeah. a little bit out of order, but, but if you think about, okay, that early Matthew narrative... Um, Joseph's family is in Egypt. Yeah. At Genesis 50. In Matthew's gospel, Joseph's family goes down to Egypt. There's a son that is attempted to be murdered by a tyrant. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, go, Jesus is uh, baptized, so he goes through the water, mm-hmm. and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. That's right. So Israel passes through the Red Sea. They end up in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, as you said, he, he, he goes up on a mountain, he teaches, he comes down from the mountain, he does 10 miracles. There's an interesting twist, though, at the end of the story, what we call the Great Commission. Uh-huh. If you think about uh, Moses went up on a mountain and got his commission from God to go get Israel out of yeah, Egypt. That's right. The disciples meet the risen Christ on that same mountain. That, the, that yeah. mountain appears three times. Jesus goes up on that mountain three times. And there, Jesus instructs his disciples to go get other disciples in all the world. And so this time, the Moses figure is played by the apostles or the disciples, and Jesus is now playing the part of Yahweh in this. So for the longest time, Jesus is Moses. Mm -hmm. At the end of the story, he's actually Yahweh, and the disciples become the new Moses. This uh, brings up another interesting word unique to St. Irenaeus, which is called recapitulation. Um which people may hear it in the word, but recapitulation is this idea of like basically recapping and repeating and fulfilling previously assigned roles by Yahweh. So Jesus, as you said, he is Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. He has called Moses and David. He formed Adam. And as a man, he picks up these roles that he's assigned and he really brings them now to fulfillment. So it's not so much that Jesus is like Moses as much as Moses was a prefiguration of Jesus, that the Exodus event and the wandering in the wilderness, this all serves to prepare Israel to recognize Christ when he comes. And it also, um, for those outside of Israel who the gospel will come to, it provides a narrative context to understand the significance Of what Christ does. As as we read the New Testament, especially Matthew, but the New Testament, or the Gospels, uh, we read the Gospels and we think, well, these are just things, it's a a record of the things that Jesus happened to do. Mm -hmm. No, Jesus is extremely deliberate in Mm -hmm. everything he does and everything he says in order to make a connection to the Old Testament. So that people, when they see him do something or when they hear him teach, they go, oh, we've seen this before. We've heard this before. And he, he's, as you said, he's, he's recapitulating. He's bringing to fulfillment all the aspects of their story, all the national hopes, all mm-hmm. the figures of the past. He's bringing them all together and saying, oh, yeah, Jeremiah, that's me. David, that's me. Moses, that's me. Melchizedek, that's me. The Son of Man, that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so at, at the, you, I can see at the end of this, at the end of the time, they're just going, "Oh my gosh, this is, this is crazy. How can we believe this?" Yeah, one of my favorite ones, favorite types, actually does have to do with Moses, because you mentioned Mark the connection between Christ going up on the mountain and and the ten miracles. So when God uh, raised up Moses as a leader over his people Israel, the people in Israel were in bondage to a tyrant who they needed to be liberated from. So when Moses performs, quote, signs and wonders, as the New Testament refers to him, like there's an edge. Like they are, uh, Moses' signs and wonders are judgment against spiritual darkness. They're judgment against the gods of Egypt. They're judgments against the kind of infernal politics of Pharaoh. Um, The plagues are a sign that like this show is coming to an end, that God is coming to usher his people into salvation through a great exodus. So I find it beautiful that Christ, in the midst of casting out demons and restoring and healing and transforming human life and reconstituting the people of Israel, gathering back the outcasts, he's doing all these very powerful, aggressive things, and he's um, he's defeating the power of Satan and the demons that he does have this moment of transfiguration on the mountain. And Moses and Elijah there appear speaking to him. And the Greek word for what they're speaking to him about is, quote, his exodus. Yep. That yep. all those beautiful stories you read about in that second book of the Bible, Exodus, they are a yep. foreshadowing of what Christ will accomplish, not through passing through a sea, which symbolizes chaos and death, but he's going to pass through chaos and death itself. itself. And he's going to turn death itself into the theater of the resurrection. And through his Passover, his Paschal mystery, through his exodus, he's going to accomplish the ultimate exodus of the people of God. Which, okay, as soon as you mention Paschal mystery, it's like, oh, which is why I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot, the the Eucharist and truly meeting him there. All of this story comes together. It's not just our liberation. It's all included, but it's because we meet him there and all of these things that he's done and accomplished get passed on to us as we feed on him. Uh, Yeah. yeah. So uh, we won't have time to get into David, but I think this is a good place to make a transition to point out an argument that St. Irenaeus makes. But he says the key to unlocking the typological connections of Scripture is actually contained in the sacraments Christ gave us. That St. Irenaeus challenges his heretics that if they want to understand the scriptures, return to the Eucharist, where the disciples' minds are opened to recognize Christ. As we see the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus, uh, this is actually a really good way to understand typology. Two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem after Good Friday. And they don't know that Easter Sunday has happened. And they are downtrodden and discouraged. Jesus, veiled, has not unveiled himself to them, is walking and asks, why are you so downcast? Well, there is this man, a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we hope that he was the one to come, but they crucified him. He says, he rebukes him and says, so slow to understand. Did you not understand? And then Luke says that he literally opened the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. So Christ understanding the Old Testament is it's him, every word of it. He tells the Pharisees once, you search the Old Testament in vain because you believe that you have life in those words, but those words speak of me. So Christ, he walks through all of the Old Testament 
and I can't imagine how their minds are blown as it all makes sense. But what's crazy is they don't recognize him yet. Mm. Then he asks them, where are you going? They tell him, well, can I come with you? Yeah, of course. Why not? I mean, this rabbi is fascinating to listen to. Well, what does he do? He takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it. And in the moment of him blessing and breaking bread, it says that their eyes are opened and they perceive him. And then he vanishes from their sight. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? So Christ, he gives this typological unpacking of scripture, but it is in the actual consecration of the elements, the supper that he gave us, the Eucharist, that they recognize him for who he is. And I would just like to point out, this is a personal opinion of mine, so I'm now venturing from catechism to a suggestion. But here's a suggestion that I would give to whoever our audience is. In my evangelical Protestant background, there's always this desire to return to our Jewish roots. And I believe that when a denomination or a Christian has a need to return to their Jewish roots, that's a sign of a biblical and liturgical deficiency which I know is a little bit maybe strong to say, but why? Catholics, I mean, I don't think we left our Jewish roots because we received the Passover meal fulfilled in Christ, the renewed Jewish liturgy, and the sacrifice of the Mass, and the Hebrew Scriptures unpacked in the apostolic message. So if anyone would desire to return to their Jewish roots, I would humbly submit the apostolic way of reading scripture, the liturgy they gave, and the sacramental life that Christ has provided in the Catholic Church. Amen. And a little side note, I think our listenership just hit the uh, 10,000 mark the other day, John. No, I'm kidding. Oh, (laughs) you shocked me for a second. (laughs) No, but amen to your thoughts, yes. Yeah. Well, Mark, would you like to, any closing thoughts on typology before we recommend resources? Uh, no, other than uh, you, you noted earlier just the necessity of it. I think there's there's so much more richness to be found. The face value reading of Scripture, it's fine, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be able to make those connections in in a in, in an educated, um, proper way, and we're not we're not seeing penguins on the moon in, in this stuff. Yeah. But being able to see the richness of the story and the narrative, mm-hmm. and to see Jesus in everything um i just think is it, it's made my bible reading so much more beautiful that's right i would like to recommend a couple of books i would first recommend what we recommend in our last episode a father who keeps his promises god's covenant love and scripture by scott hahn this is both a narrative covenantal approach and a typological approach to scripture so if you would like to have a great example anything by scott hahn and i would add basically everything scott hahn writes utilizes that hermeneutic so if you also read his books on the eucharist or the blessed virgin mary or the sacrament of healing i.e confession um it's it's going to demonstrate that reading of scripture i also have a book by a church father which is short and it's not a difficult read this is from the popular patristic series published by saint vladimir's press this is a book written by saint irenaeus of leon who i was quoting earlier And it's called On the Apostolic Preaching. And what it is, 
is it is a demonstration of how apostles, when they arrived in the city, would preach Jesus Christ from the scriptures they had, the Old Testament. You'll find a lot of New Testament theology in here, but not a New Testament quotation. Because what he's doing is he is demonstrating Christ in the gospel from the Old Testament the way that the apostles themselves had done. Because Irenaeus was not so historically removed to have forgotten what an apostolic sermon sounded like. And then a more academic book that I love, if anyone wants something more academic, a book about Irenaeus of Leon and how he read scripture. Um, it's written by John Baer, an Orthodox scholar, and it's simply called Irenaeus of Leon, Identifying Christianity. So, Good stuff. Good stuff. There you have it. There you have it. Well, uh, I hope that our listeners have had as much fun as we have. And until then, have a great time. <laughs>